Hi, my name's Jess Forward. I'm in fourth year arts and I'm going to do today's Bible reading. It's Judges chapter 19 verses 1 to 29, which can be found in your handout. So if you guys just want to follow as I read. In those days, Israel had no king. Now a Levite who lived in a remote area in the hill country of Ephraim took a concubine from Bethlehem in Judah. But she was unfaithful to him. She left him and went back to her father's house in Bethlehem, Judah. After she had been there four months, her husband went to her to persuade her to return. He had with him his servant and two donkeys. She took him into her father's house, and when her father saw him, he gladly welcomed him. His father-in-law, the girl's father, prevailed upon him to stay, so he remained with him three days, eating and drinking and sleeping there. On the fourth day they got up early and he prepared to leave, but the girl's father said to his son-in-law, Refresh yourself with something to eat, then you can go. So the two of them sat down to eat and drank together. Afterwards the girl's father said, Please stay tonight and enjoy yourself. And when the man got up to go, his father-in-law persuaded him, so he stayed there that night. On the morning of the fifth day, when he rose to go, the girl's father said, Refresh yourself, wait till afternoon. So the two of them ate together. Then, when the man with his concubine and his servant got up to leave, his father-in-law, the girl's father, said, Now look, it's almost evening. Spend the night here. The day is nearly over. Stay and enjoy yourself. Early tomorrow morning you can get up and be on your way home. But, unwilling to stay another night, the man left and went towards Jebus that is, Jerusalem, with his two saddled donkeys and his concubine. When they were near Jebus and the day was almost gone, the servant said to his master, Come, let's stop at this city of the Jebusites and spend the night. His master replied, No, we won't go into an alien city whose people are not Israelites. We will go on to Gibeah. He added, Come, let's try to reach Gibeah or Ramah and spend the night in one of those places. So they went on. And the sun set as they neared Gibeah in Benjamin. There they stopped to spend the night. They went and sat in the city square, but no one took them into his home for the night. That evening an old man from the hill country of Ephraim, who was living in Gibeah, the men of the place were Benjaminites, came in from his work in the fields. When he looked and saw the traveller in the city square, the old man asked, Where are you going? Where did you come from? He answered, We are on our way from Bethlehem in Judah to a remote area in the hill country of Ephraim where I live. I have been to Bethlehem in Judah and now I am going to the house of the Lord. No one has taken me into his house. We have both straw and fodder for our donkeys and bread and wine for ourselves, your servants, me, your maidservant, and the young man with us. We don't need anything. You are welcome at my house, the old man said. Let me supply whatever you need. Only don't spend the night in the square. So he took him into his house and fed his donkeys. After they had washed their feet, they had something to eat and drink. While they were enjoying themselves, some of the wicked men of the city surrounded the house. Pounding on the door, they shouted to the old man who owned the house, Bring out the man who came to your house so we can have sex with him. The owner of the house went outside and said to them, No, my friends, don't be so vile. Since this man is my guest, don't do this disgraceful thing. Look. Here is my virgin daughter and his concubine. I will bring them out to you now, and you can use them and do to them whatever you wish. But to this man, don't do such a disgraceful thing. But the men would not listen to him. So the man took his concubine and sent her outside to them, and they raped her and abused her throughout the night, and at dawn they let her go. At daybreak, the woman went back to the house where her master was staying, 
fell down at the door and lay there until daylight. When her master got up in the morning and opened the door of the house and stepped out to continue on his way, there lay his concubine, fallen in the doorway of the house, with her hands on the threshold. He said to her, Get up, let's go. But there was no answer. Then the man put her on his donkey and set out for home. When he reached home, he took a knife and cut up his concubine, limb by limb, into twelve parts, and sent them into all the areas of Israel. Everyone who saw it said, Such a thing has never been seen or done, not since the day the Israelites came up out of Egypt. Think about it. Consider it. Tell us what to do. Let's pray together. Father, help us to think about this passage. Help us to consider it. Help us to work out what to do. Um, I have been doing this talk all week now and I still don't really know how to introduce this talk because I think what we have here really is one of the most savage stories in the Bible. Uh, The cruelty that comes out of this section is pretty difficult to cope with if you've got any sense at all. Uh, Not only do you have the brutality of a vicious pack rape that lasts all through the night, you've also got the unbelievable callousness of this guy who hands his concubine over to this pack rape. Verse 25 of that chapter says, So the man took his concubine and sent her outside to them, and they raped her and they abused her throughout the night. And at dawn, they let her go. And I think that shocking incident, that gruesome incident, is meant to shock us into feeling something that the Israelites did, at least some thoughts that they had. See, they're right at the end of chapter 19. They said, such a thing has never been seen or done. Think about it. Consider it. Tell us what to do. At the end, they're asking the question, what's gone wrong? That was their question. What needs to be done? What's happening here? And before we get into more details of this passage, I think always, once again, it's helpful to remind us of the story so far in the context. Because have you been noticing over the last three weeks as we're looking at this book, we've just gone through Judges and things have been just getting worse and worse and worse. The further you read, the further you've been reading the book of Judges, the worse it's getting, the more out of control it's getting. See, when we first started Judges a couple of weeks ago, we we remember reading a part of Judges, chapter 2, that talked about the cycles that was happening. You know, firstly, Israel sins. God hands Israel over to the enemies. Uh, the enemies, uh, the, Israel cries out to God for help. Um, God sends a saviour judge to save them. And at first, at least, Israel did the right thing while the judge was alive. You, you see that. that they lapsed back into sin, certainly. But while the judge was alive, they were saying, God, help us. See, but Israel just gets worse and worse. Because by the time you get to Gideon and Jephthah, Israel's lapsing back into sin, even while the judges were still alive. Even while the judge was still alive. And by the time you get to Samson, Israel has degenerated so badly, so much so, that they can't even be bothered calling out to God for help. See, at other times they've been oppressed for about 18, 20 years, something like that. A long time. But at least they got the decency to say, God help us. But by the time Samson came along, they're so godless, they're so far gone, that they can't even be bothered asking God for help. It took God to take the initiative, even without Israel asking for it. And throughout, Israel, throughout this book of Judges, throughout the history, you just get this spiral that goes further and further into sin. But it's not just the nation of Israel. 
The other thing that you notice, I hope, as you've been reading through Judges, is not only does Israel spiral into sin, the judges also themselves spiral into sin. Remember the first judge that we read about last week? Othniel? He was the squeaky clean white knight judge, right? The model judge. Things happened, he, he, he came on the scene, and immediately things were fixed up. He was squeaky clean, the model judge. But by the time you get to Gideon, you get this wimp who wants to take the credit for God. And by the time you get to Jephthah, you've got this sneaky little political schema who only saves Israel for what he can get out of the, the deal. And when you get to Samson, the last judge, you've got a womanizer who sleeps around. He sleeps around with pagan women, and he can only be bothered fighting for the, uh, fighting for the Philistines only when his love life is in jeopardy. It's horrible. We've got this steady spiral, deeper and deeper into sin, and it's not only Israel, but also the judges as well. And then right at the end, if you've got your Bibles there, take it out, because we'll be flipping through it a little bit. Right at the end of chapter 21, verse 25, it's all summed up there in the very last verse. Chapter 21, verse 25. In those days, Israel had no king, Everyone did as they saw fit. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as he saw fit. In fact, that was the first verse that we started off with today, isn't it, in our reading? In fact, that phrase, in those days, Israel had no king, actually gives us a structure of this passage. Throughout this section of the book, from chapters 17 to 21, that phrase is actually mentioned four times. The last few chapters of the judge are marked by this repeated chorus. It's there in your outline. It's basically the same chorus repeated over and over. The middle two is a little bit abbreviated. But in those days, Israel had no king. You see it in chapter 17, verse 6, chapter 18, verse 1, chapter 19, verse 1, and also right at the end of the book, in verse 25 of chapter 21. Uh, the chorus says, with a bit of addition, in, in those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as, as they saw fit. Four times, chapter 17 to 21, everyone was doing their own thing. There was no king. And it's a mess. And clearly, that's what's happening in these last five chapters that make up the final section of the book of Judges. You see, this last section is very different to the other sections. In the bits that we've read before, remember, you got the cycle? You got stuff about the judges. In this last bit, you don't get the cycle anymore. You don't get stuff about any judges. All you get is a description of how far Israel has gone, that descent into sin. We didn't get to read the first story, but it happens in chapters 17 and 18. The story actually tells how badly the religion has actually deteriorated. You can read it later on. I hope you do. I hope one of the things I have done here over the last three weeks is get you excited about reading the scriptures again, giving you a structure about, wow, there's fantastic things in the scriptures that you can actually learn about. But it's basically about a Levite who, who becomes a man's personal priest. That's what happens there. And it shows just how far the religion has degenerated into superstition, you know, uh, it almost shows that your religion is your good luck charm. Your religion is like your rabbit's foot, your talisman or something like that. It's something that brings you luck. Although, if you actually read the chapters, you actually find that it does anything apart from bring you luck. The first story actually shows you how far religion has actually degenerated in the book of Judges. We read a part of the second story. Uh, we're going to get back to that in a little bit de uh, more detail. There's insensitivity, there's violence. But the whole thing ends up with Israel erupting into civil war, uh, virtually wiping out one of the, it, it, their own tribes. Because what happens in chapter 20, in the next chapter, uh, is that as a result of this cruelty that's gone on, 
as a result of what happens in this Benjamite city, all the other tribes actually gang up to, to virtually wipe out the Benjamites uh, in revenge. And a horrible irony actually comes in chapter 21 of the book. Because the other tribes turn around and they actually encourage the Benjamites to go and kidnap the women of, of Shiloh. You see, after the civil war, after what happens in chapter 20, the rest of Israel were worried that the Benjamites would die out because they weren't left with any wives. And so the Benjamites, who were actually originally condemned so strongly for their cruelty, for raping this girl, originally condemned for that, the other tribes now turn around and they encourage them to go on virtually doing the same thing with the women of Shiloh. The promises of God are threatened. So, well, let's encourage our brothers to do this horrible thing to the women of Shiloh. The, the hypocrisy is deafening here. And sin has reached its crescendo. Sin has reached its peak. And four times in this section we're told that in those days Israel had no king. Judges is a story of going from the good, what happens in chapters 1 and 2, they enter the land, they got everything that they asked for, what God has promised, to the bad, and now to some of the most ugly scenes in the Bible. So we need to go back to chapter 19 and have a look at it, because we need to understand what the writer is trying to say, the emotions that the writer is trying to get us to feel, the things that the writer is trying to get us to see. And right there, once again, as I remind you, chapter 19, verse 1, it gives its context. In those days, Israel had no king. Uh, the man has taken a partner who's been unfaithful. The woman goes back to her father's house. And the intervening verses before verse 11, the man goes after a while to get her back. That's the thing. He brings her back to his home. And we meet him on his, on, on, the way to, uh, on his journey along the way. In verse 11, returning to his own place with her, uh, with his servant, with his donkeys. That's the narrative that's going on. But have a look at the expectation of the traveller. The expectation of the traveller as to where he chooses to stay. Because that's what verses 11 to 15 is all about. That's what he's trying to get at. See, he refuses to stay in a non-Israelite city. Um, he refuses to stay in a non-Israelite town because he's afraid of what might happen to him there. After all, Israel are God's people. A nation with loyalties and obligations for hospitality and care for one another. Is such an understanding was basic to the national identity. You look after your own. That's what you did. And so verse 11, when they came near Jebus, and the day has almost gone, the servant said to his master, come, let's, let's stop at the city of the Jebusites and spend the night. But his master replied, no way. We won't go to an alien city whose people aren't Israelites. We're going to go on to Gibeah. See, that's a story. And so they try to reach that town, and they get there eventually. See, his expectation was, if only I can get to that Israelite city, the city of my own nationality, I'm going to be safe. Because we belong there. And we don't want to go to an alien city because of what might happen to us. That's the expectation. Well, those expectations are sorely disappointed. Have a look at verse 16. That evening, an old man from the hill country of Ephraim, who was living in Geber, the men of that place were Benjamites, came in from his work in the fields. When he looked and saw the traveller in the city square, the old man asked, Where are you going? Where did you come from? See, the old man from the hill country comes down, looks around, and sees a bloke standing there. Right? The point is, he's been standing there all the time, and the locals, the Israelites, haven't even batted an eyelid. And it takes an outsider, a stranger in the town, who actually comes in, sees that it's nearly dark, and says, well, come with me, I'm going to put you up for the night. And it's ominous in verse 20 when he says, 
Uh, you're welcome at my house, the old man said. Let me supply with whatever you need. Only there's one condition. Don't spend the night in the square. He knows something. Because what follows is, is this. What happens to him is horrible. The locals surround the town. They want to rape the guy who's come to visit the town. The stranger, the host, objects and he says, don't be so vile. And we're astonished, aren't we, when we read the next sentence. And he offers his own virgin daughter and the man's concubine instead. It seems to go from bad to worse, doesn't it? We're not sure whether we're revolted by the townspeople who actually want to rape the guy or whether for the guy to let his daughter go or his guest's concubine. And eventually the master sends out his concubine and they rape her until she's dead. You can't believe verse 27, when her master got up in the morning. Because what does that imply? He had a good night's sleep. He chucks her out the door, sends her out, gets her, away, gets her raped. He sleeps, wakes up and goes, oh, it's morning time. I'm going to go up along my way. He opens the door and she sees her lying in the doorway. And he says, get up, let's go. And there's no answer. See, the narrator of the story doesn't make any further comments. We've got to fill in the, the, the bits. But you see the points there, don't you? She's dead. She's not moving. That's what happened. What an irony. The guy goes to a town where he expects protection, where he expects hospitality, and this happens. How could it get worse? And so it concludes, think about it. Consider it. You read it. Think about it. Consider it. Tell us what to do. Because while the narrator is recording for us what happens in this town three and a half thousand years ago, whatever has happened there, it's actually a comment of the time, a comment of what's happened. And if you haven't got it already, it goes from good to bad to ugly. And you know, you're meant to be sitting there as the reader of this book saying, crying out for justice. You're supposed to be saying things like, God, you can't let this go on. You've got to do something about it. And you know what? That's exactly what you're meant to cry out. But the thing I want to do now is to actually look at the wider context of this book, the wider biblical history, because Judges was actually written at a time when God has done something about it. You see, you're meant to cry out, God, do something about it. And something has happened. Turn back one page to chapter 18, verse 30. It's an important verse because it actually gives us an insight into the author's vantage point, where he's writing from. Verse 30, chapter 18. There the Danites set up for themselves the idols, and Jonathan, son of Gershom, the son of Moses, and his sons were priests for the tribe of Dan until the time of the captivity of the land. And it's that last phrase which I think gives us the clue, until the time of the captivity of the land, because that phrase actually refers to an event called the exile. And the exile was this event which happened way after the last judge, many years after the last judge, after they had kings, after Samson. Because what happened was that the nation of Babylon came over, came down from the north, and destroyed the Jews. They destroyed the temple, and they carried off the Jews into exile. That's how it got, got its name. The temple was destroyed, the cities were destroyed, the king of Israel was killed, and they dragged the Jews out of the promised land. And Israel couldn't cope with that. Right? You remember those psalms? They were sitting around by the rivers of Babylon. How can we sing the songs of Zion? We can't do it. What on earth has happened to us? That their very identity was, was, was 
shattered. What's happened? Why are we here? Who's to blame? And they start looking for scapegoats as to why it was they've been kicked out of the promised land. And it's like us, isn't it? That's what we want to do. Whenever trouble happens to us, we want to look for an excuse. It's not our fault. It's never our fault. It's always someone else's fault. Uh, last July, we, we had a holiday. Uh, we actually took our family away on a holiday out to the Lulu Mountains. But one of the most horrible things about going up to the Lulu Mountains after many years as, as a child when you went up there is that you just can't find the parks like you did when you were little. You know, all those parks with huge climbing frames, the monkey bars and the flying foxes and things like that, they don't have them anymore. Why? Because the council's been sued so many times that they've ripped them out. They might have been a little bit dangerous, but no one ever wants to take the responsibility. It's our world. I can still remember uh, sitting back in the back of some mother's group and a couple of women was talking about how one of them was injured and they were working out who they could sue. It's crazy. 10% of my income, 10% of my gross income, goes into medical indemnity insurance. I worked for a month and a half for the medical insurance company because of the threat of, of being sued. It's, it's horrible. We want to blame someone else. And there they were, sitting by the rivers of Babylon. They're asking the question, why are we here? Who's it to blame? You know, maybe it was the priests. That's the problem. Was it their fault? They're the ones who let us down. Maybe that's the case. Or perhaps it was the politicians. It was the kings. Israel was going to be a monarchy as, as you turn the pages, as you turn to Samuel, as you turn to kings. You actually see Israel become a monarchy after the judges' period. Was it their fault? They're looking for a scapegoat. And part of the point of the chorus that you read over and over again in chapter 17 and 21, in the end of the book of Judges, is to say, you can't blame those lousy kings. They were pretty crappy. We knew that. There's no doubt about it. But that's not why we're here in exile. Because back in those days, they didn't even have kings. Back in the time of Judges, there weren't even any kings there. And you can't get any worse than this. You can't blame the religious chaos. You can't blame the civil war on the kings. Israel's a total mess. Morally, politically, socially. And in terms of the promises of God, it's hit rock bottom. And it's rock bottom without kings. Can't blame the monarchy later on. That's part of what's saying. See, Judges was a book written after the exile about events that happened before the exile, describing events there, and it's saying to Israel, you've got no one else to blame apart from yourself. The exile is God's punishment for your persistent spiral into sin. And you can't blame the priests, you can't blame the judges, you can't blame the kings. You guys were hopeless. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. See, I think we're meant to see this event in chapter 19 as the total failure of the nation of Israel. The failure of God's plans and purposes. That's what the events in chapter 19 in Judges are about. Because for some of you, you'd recognise those events. It's very similar to events that happen in Genesis around chapters 18 and 19, aren't they? I don't need you to look this up, but jot it down so that you can read it later on. Genesis chapter 18 and chapter 19. It's a lead up to an event that you know well. Verse 20 of chapter 18 of Genesis. Then the Lord said, The outcry against who? Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sins so grievous that I will go down and see if what they have done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. If not, I will not. 
God is talking to Abraham, and he's just about to do to Sodom and Gomorrah horrible judgment things. And the description in chapter 19 here in Judges is exactly the sort of stuff that's going on in Sodom and Gomorrah. That's the pattern that this Judges bit is following. And what's the author of Judges telling us? What's the narrator telling us? He's showing us that Israel has sunk to the point of Sodom and Gomorrah. Back there in Genesis. That's what the nation, God's own people, have become by the end of the book of Judges. Right? And you might be saying, ah, oh, yes, so what? But that's a horrific judgment on them. See, God called this nation, Israel, out of all the nations of the world to be special possession. In Exodus 19, the whole constitution went like this, that, that this nation of Israel was to be God's treasured possession. That although the whole earth is mine, says God, when he set them up, he said to them, you're going to be a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. That when the, all the nations of the world look at you and see what's going on, when they look at the nation of Israel, they're going to see a lot of what God is like. And yet, this is what has happened. They've sunk to the place where they're called Sodom and Gomorrah, really, by the story that's describing them. The byword in debasement and evil. That's what's going on in this nation. See, that's the significance of this event in Judges. It started off good, it's gone bad, and it's got so ugly that you can describe Israel as Sodom and Gomorrah. But how has that come about? They've totally failed to be what God has intended, but what has happened? And I think it's now that as we've done the whole book of Judges, we can actually look back and actually see the beginning of the problem. Because you remember back in chapter 2, the book of Judges, do you remember what happened there? Remember, Israel, under Joshua, went into the Promised Land. And they were asked to destroy the nations there of Canaan, but to destroy the idols, and they were to worship God. But they didn't kill off the Canaanites. They started worshipping the Canaanite gods, and they said, Rack off God. We don't want anything to do with you. We love these pagan idols. They began to worship the gods of the nations round about. That's how the downward spiral actually started off. So that by the time you get to chapter 17 or 18, you don't even know what worshipping God is. They're so confused. They're worshipping with idols. It's completely confused. It's religious chaos. And by the time you get to chapter 19, you get this incredible moral chaos that slipped down and down and down. And what has happened? Well, what's happened is because they've, they've fallen away from their trust and their knowledge of God. They've pulled the plug on worshipping God. they said, rack off God. We don't want you to be God. We don't want any relationship with you. We know what we want. We know what to do. They've cut themselves off from God. That's the source of the problem. And then the end result is religious chaos and moral chaos. It's right there, back in the beginning of the book of Judges, in chapter 2. It, it, it's like the snowball effect that you see in those Bugs Bunny cartoons. You know how it is. Daffy ducks on top of the hill, he gets pushed over, and he rolls over a little bit, and there's a bit of snow on him, and then trees get attracted, and then bigger snowball. So that by the time the hill, it, it's this huge snowball that sort of knocks everything over. And it's like that here. Starts up by one little event. We won't worship God. We worship these idols. We don't want anything to do with God. And the end result of this snowball is religious chaos, is moral chaos. The Republic has not only failed, it's disastrous. See, here in the book of Judges and what happens to Israel, I think we actually see a pattern of our own culture and our own world. Because as we read this story, isn't it sad that it's not unique? 
Isn't it sad that we know of this sort of stuff happening, of gang rapes and, and murder and strife? Uh, in preparing for this talk on Monday night, I was uh, just typing in the word rape in the City Morning Herald website. And it's just horrible how many hits you get from just typing that one word. Uh, there are stories about uh, an 11-year-old boy in, in Orange charged with rape. New South Wales has now uh, the record for the youngest boy charged with rape. That's a great record to hold, isn't it? You hear about seven news in, in Badara uh, Children's Court charged with gang rape, 16 to 19 year olds. About teachers and choir masters and, and other people committing horrible things. And, and last year's Villa Skag thing, another gang rape thing. It's horrible. Three and a half thousand years on from these events, and we're familiar with it. And you sort of think to yourself, hang on, look, we've got a better education than the Jews ever had. You know, we've got a good education system now. That's fantastic, isn't it? And all it's produced for us are cleverer crooks. We're wealthier than they ever were. We've got a higher standard of living than those Israelites ever were. And yet we live in a nation with one of the highest rates of discontent. We're consumers that want more and more and more. We're greater sexual freedom. You can express yourself. And yet there's more sexual dysfunction in our society. More people going to sexual counselling than there ever has been at any time in our history. It's crazy. Look, friends, I'm all for fixing up symptoms. I'm all for making the world a better place. Please don't get me wrong here. I would like to transform society like it was back in, in, in the earlier centuries. I'd love the Christian voice to take the lead in culture, in music, in, in literature. I want that to happen. I would love to see that we have societies like the Australian Mutual Providence Fund that looked after the homeless and the widows, rather than being a, a, a company whose shares prices keep on going down nowadays. I'd like the Sydney Morning Herald once again to be the, the layman's pulpit that reports on the Sunday sermon at the cathedral every Monday, that you actually hear what God's voice is. I'd love that to happen. But the thing I want to say here, though, also, is to don't just treat the symptoms and not the disease itself. One of my frustrations as a general practitioner often is that people come in and they just want to be feeling better. 40-year-old men, 50-year-old men are typical of this. They just want to feel better. They don't want to deal with the source of the problem. Don't be like that. Because what this part of the Book of Judges is saying, there's a source of the problem. That's cutting yourself off from God and it's led to these disasters. Because we're familiar with that story, aren't we? We know what the Apostle Paul wrote in the beginning of Romans. It says, in Romans 1, verse 21, it says, For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God, nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man, and birds, and animals, and reptiles. See? We want to get rid of God. And three times in that passage, God says, Therefore God gave them over. God says, you want to live life without me? Fine, live life without me. See what that's like. We get exactly what we ask for, life without God. And you read of the horrible things that happen. God gave them over to depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. They become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed and depravity. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit and malice. 
They're gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant and boastful. They invent ways of doing. And if you think that it's not talking about you, it's there. They disobey their parents. Senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Although they knew God's righteous degree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. See, Israel's failure is our failure. Israel's decline is what we see when we cut ourselves off from God. The Republic is hopeless. That's fair. The monarchy is hopeless. That is fair. So many things are failed. But we have an unfailing God. A God who's actually done something about that problem of being cut off from God. The root problem of our sin. Our involvement with sin. And our, and our captivity to sin. While everything else might fail, our unfailing God has given us our solution. You see that right on the bottom of the page there. In 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. That's where that passage comes from. See, Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. The heart of the problem is being cut off from God. The heart of the problem is rejecting God. And there's a way of changing this. There's a way of being reconnected. And it's in the death of Jesus. That's where it's at. And friends, it's here that I want to say, please don't buy the lie. Do whatever you have to do to transform the world, because they're good things. But the proclamation of the Gospel, the declaration that Jesus Christ is Lord, through his death and resurrection, is one of the most significant things that you can do. Next week is one of the most significant events that's going to happen in your university career. The invitations that you make this week, for them to come as they hear that great gospel message, is one of the most significant things that will happen. Because it fixes up problems. It transforms lives. It deals with the problem. So let's be personal and let's be prayerful. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you're a God who's shown us the problem and you've shown us the problems that result from that original problem. And our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you've also given us a solution by your gracious initiative with seeing Christ die on the cross to bring us back to you. And so, dear Lord, we pray that we'll be bold in proclaiming and bold in inviting. In Jesus' name.